Uh, as Dan mentioned, today we are going to be in the book of Colossians, and uh, it's an absolutely profound and encouraging letter to the church at Colossae from Paul, where he highlights uh, the importance and the clarity of the gospel, uh, specifically at a time where the Colossian church uh, was, as we see, they were living for Christ, but uh, doing so in a place where there was false teaching, um, heresy, mysticism, other worldly ideologies that were also prevalent and were a threat to core Christ-centered theology. And so that's where uh, Paul is writing to them about here in the first half of Colossians. He says, look at the beauty of Christ and have your souls contented and rooted in him. Uh, don't look to other false doctrines or alluring mysticisms that cannot satisfy or save in the way that Christ can. And then in the second half of the book, uh, Paul gets a little more practical. What does living a life for Christ look like practically? Um, he talks about avoiding a legalistic life, uh, living a life of freedom in Christ, keeping our mindset on Christ, on things above, even as we are living in the here and now. And so today we'll give a brief introduction to the book of Colossians and the setting of the gospel message that came to, the, came to those Colossians. So in chapter 1, verses 1 through 8. Uh, and then this uh, epic message of the gospel uh, was a precursor to Paul's prayer for the Colossians to live out an epic calling, to live a life worthy of the Lord that we see here in verses 9 through 11. And so we'll break that down and then uh, what that looks like and end up where Paul says it's all made possible again by the epic redemption we've obtained in Christ in uh, verses 12 to 14. So as we begin to unpack what the Lord has for us in this passage, uh, may our hearts be encouraged, uh, strengthened, uh, and challenged in our, our walks with him and in our love and thankfulness to him. Uh, as you turn to Colossians 1, uh, let's come before the Lord in prayer as we begin. Gracious God and Heavenly Father, just we praise you, we honor you, Lord. You are worthy of praise, Lord. You are so good, your, your mercy is endless to us, Lord. Your love is enduring, God, and we have so much to thank you for. May you uh, be ever glorified, as we've sang this morning, Lord, and teach our hearts to, to trust you more, Lord. Uh, Jesus, you, you are so good to us, God, far beyond what we deserve, Lord. I pray that uh, as the word goes forth this morning, Lord, that it would be your words and not my own, God, uh, and that you would uh, speak and encourage our hearts, Lord. And we ask all these things in the precious name of Jesus. Amen. So a brief introduction to the book of Colossians. Uh, Colossae was a Roman city uh, in Asia. It was about 100 miles uh, from Ephesus and right down the road from Laodicea. And as far as we know, Paul never visited the church in Colossae. Uh, previously, when Paul was preaching the gospel in Ephesus, uh, there was a Colossian there named Epaphras, and he heard the gospel message and was saved. And Epaphras then went back to Colossae, and he shared the gospel with the people there, and they were saved, and a new church began to grow. So if you fast forward then from there, seven to ten years, Paul is now imprisoned in Rome. He's under house arrest, and he's writing a letters, uh, letters which we know to be uh, epistles to the churches in Ephesus, uh, Colossae, and to Philemon. And so Paul begins this letter uh, by greeting the Colossian believers here uh, from what we see in verses 1 through 2. So as we get started uh, in this, uh, let's read through this passage uh, and begin here. Colossians 1, uh, verses 1 through 14. This is the word of the Lord. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God, and Timothy, our brother, 
to the saints and faithful brothers in Christ at Colossae, grace to you and peace from God our Father. We always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you, since we have heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love that you have for all the saints because of the hope laid up for you in heaven. Of this you have heard before in the word of truth, the gospel, which has come to you, as indeed in the whole world it is bearing fruit and increasing, as it also does among you since the day you heard it and understood the grace of God in truth. Just as you learned it from Epaphras, our beloved fellow servant, he is a faithful minister of Christ on your behalf and has made known to us your love in the Spirit. And so from the day we heard, we have not ceased to pray for you, asking that you would be filled with the knowledge of his will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding, so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God being strengthened with all power according to his glorious might, for all endurance and patience with joy, giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. So Paul makes it known uh, in verses 1 and 2 here that uh, he's writing this letter as an apostle. He's writing with God-given authority. And though these believers have never met Paul uh, as an apostle, he's been given the authority to write to them in the manner that he does here. Uh, Paul is writing this letter from Rome with Timothy. It's, uh, it says Timothy here. And he addresses it to the saints in Colossae, who he calls faithful brothers in Christ. Even though he's never met them, there is a common bond in Christ. Just as Timothy is Paul's brother in Christ, so are these brothers in Colossae. They can both call God their father. And so Paul gives his typical greeting here, similar to what he does in other letters. Grace and peace to you from God our Father. He also ends Colossians with grace. He says, grace be with you. Uh, And we saw the same use, didn't we, when we studied uh, Philippians last year in our city groups and as uh, Dan introduced us to the book of Timothy. The grace of God, that marvelous, unmerited, divine favor shown to us as only God can. And it's grace and peace, the peace of God, perfect, sustaining peace that only God can offer. Not the absence of conflict, but peace in the storm, peace in the trials, peace for, offered for every situation that we encounter. They are a proper greeting and ending to this letter. So why is Paul writing this letter? What is the, what is the occasion for it? Well, Paul has among his visitors in Rome, Epaphras. In Colossians 4, Paul writes that Epaphras sends his greetings to these believers. So we know he's in Rome visiting Paul, and he's giving him an update on the church in Colossae. Now, what do we know about Epaphras? Well, he's certainly no slouch. Uh, Colossians 4 tells us that he was a servant of Jesus Christ and a servant of the body of Christ. He's always struggling on their behalf in his prayers, praying earnestly that these believers would stand mature and fully mature and fully assured in all the will of God. It tells us that he was working hard for the believers in the church in Colossae, uh, also the ones in Laodicea and Hierapolis. The, these three churches were in close proximity to one another along the Lycus River in Turkey. And in verse 7 here also, in chapter 1, Paul calls Epaphras a beloved fellow servant, a faithful minister of Christ on behalf of the Colossians. So Epaphras, was a, he was a great guy. He's at hard at work in gospel efforts, ministering to the saints. 
And so what, what testimony does Epaphras give Paul concerning the church in Colossae? What's his report on this church? Well, we see that in verses 3 through 5. It says, We always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you, since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love that you have for all of the saints because of the hope laid up for you in heaven. Paul gives thanks to God in his prayers for the Colossians. He's got a good report from Epaphras about them. And Epaphras tells Paul about their faith in Christ Jesus. They came to Christ when they received the gospel message, and they've continued on in their faith. Their faith was descriptive of them. And I can imagine Paul and Epaphras meeting together, and Paul saying, so, you know, Epaphras, how are the Christians in Colossae doing? And the first thing Epaphras says is, their faith in Jesus is strong. That is a good report. That's a good report to have. How, how about us? You know, when, when people describe us, what's the first thing that comes to their minds? Is it the hobbies we enjoy? You know, oh, Eric, you know, he, he loves soccer, right? Um, or that we're hard workers or that we care, you know, for our families. These aren't bad things, but what if the first thing that came to their minds was that man or that woman, their faith is strong. They love Jesus, you know? That's a good report to have. And Paul also speaks of all of their, their love for all the saints, their love for their be- fellow brothers and sisters in Christ. Love for our brothers and sisters in Christ is a mark of a believer. 1 John 4, right, commands us to love one another, but explains that it's because God is love and because he first loved us, which he showed by sending his son, then we ought to love one another. And in doing so, his love abides in us and is perfected in us. This was true of the Colossians, Colossian saints and should also be true for us, right? Um, Paul also indicates that their faith and love is because of the hope that they have laid up in heaven. Faith, love, and hope. You know, these, these are the, the characteristics, the virtues that were being exemplified in this church. And we see those same three virtues uh, frequently intertwined throughout Scripture, don't we? Um, you know, for example, in 1 Corinthians 13, 13, it says, so now faith, hope, and love abide these three, but the greatest of these is love, right? Faith, hope, and love are essential to the Christian life. They are core. By faith in Christ Jesus, we have received the free gift of salvation. And having received that salvation, our love proves it. It's a marker. It says they will know we are Christians by our love. We who have shown, been shown the infinite love of God can now reflect and show that love to one another. And here in Colossians, as Paul speaks of hope, he does speak of it as something that we have, not something that we are doing, right? We're not hoping our salvation is secure. Uh, instead, we have a confidence that our future in glory is secure because it is laid up in heaven. Praise God. It's the Lord who secures it. He secures it, the King of heaven and earth. So we can live lives of faith and love because we have a confidence which is laid away in heaven for us. And it cannot be corrupted. It cannot be stolen. It is secured by God himself. And the Colossian believers, they lived with this confidence. This comes as a result of coming to faith, right? Of hearing the gospel and receiving salvation and turning to Christ. And how did that gospel, that epic message of salvation, come to them? Well, that's what we see here in verses 5 through 8. Uh, he talks about them hearing the gospel, which has come to you, as in the whole world is bearing fruit and increasing since the day that you heard it. You know, this is the great commission being acted out, isn't it? Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations. See, 
Paul received Christ after meeting him on the road to Damascus. And then he went to Ephesus and preached the gospel. And Epaphras heard the gospel in Ephesus, and he received it. And he went back and shared it with the people in Colossae. And some of them received it. You know, the gospel is to be shared, isn't it? It's good news. It's the word of truth. It's the good news for a world that Jesus Christ came to die for wretched sinners so that all who would trust in him would be saved. And that message is powerful, bearing fruit and increasing, as it says. You know, Romans 1.16 reminds us, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. This is why the message was and is bearing fruit and increasing. It is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. And the gospel was bearing fruit and increasing among the Colossians because Epaphras was faithful in fulfilling the Great Commission. He was not ashamed of the gospel. He was willing. He was willing to bring it to others, bold in sharing it with others. And I think about, you know, what about here in, in Lake Mary, in Longwood, and Sanford, and, and Altamont? Is the gospel going forth? Is it being freely shared and boldly proclaimed? Do we see it being bearing fruit and increasing? Um, you know, if we don't, then, then maybe a better question to ask is, are we engaged in gospel proclamation? That's a good question to ask. You know, because just as someone in our lives received the gospel and then they shared with us and we've received the gospel, now who are we sharing that good news of salvation with? You know, praise God that there are many here today uh, who are faithful in this. Um, just last month when the sent men helped Arlene move uh, to Deltona, there was an opportunity to present the good news of the gospel with her neighbor, someone that Arlene has been pr- actively praying for, encouraging, ministering. And praise God that in a routine activity like moving furniture, the gospel was proclaimed. And Epaphras was faithful in bringing the gospel to Colossae, and he remained faithful in ministering to them. And here when this letter is being written, he's in Rome, making known to Paul and Timothy the love of the saints in Colossae. And so Paul hears this update from Epaphras, and he has this beautiful prayer of encouragement for these believers that includes this epic calling to live a life worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him. And that's what we see here in verse 10. It says, So as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him. You know, that phrase in uh, verse 10, so as to walk in a manner of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, that is the goal that is the, the epic calling we have. That is, that's the main point about his prayer here. <clears throat> Excuse me. And Paul is praying this for these believers, and he's not stopping, is he? It says, from the day we heard, we have not ceased to pray for you. And so to live in a manner worthy of the Lord means to live, to behave in a way uh, that is fitting for a follower of Jesus, a way that fully pleases him. Sometimes that's easier said than done, right? This is a, this is a high calling, uh, but an important one, you know. And when something is repeated in Scripture frequently, uh, we know it to be important, right? Um, so we have three other passages uh, that also speak to the same thing. Uh, the first one is Ephesians 4.1. Paul says, I therefore, a prisoner of the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. 
This isn't a pleasant suggestion. It's not a, an idea or even a high and mighty, you know, philosophical ideal, right? No, Paul is urging them. He's insisting. He's beseeching them. This is an urgent plea. Walk. Live your life in a manner worthy of your calling. Philippians 1.27 gives us the same thing. Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. He says, only let it, your manner be worthy of the gospel of Christ. For Christians, this is the exclusive manner in which we are to live. It's not optional. There's not another manner available to us. And that's a broad statement, right? My life, sun up to sun down, every day is called to be lived in accordance with every command, every teaching that's laid out in the Bible for believers. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and soul and might. Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. Love one another. Encourage one another. This is a calling to us, brothers and sisters. We are responsible to live in a way that mirrors the truths that we are learning as we read God's word. We are called to live in a way that exalts and brings glory to Christ. Our lifestyle should match the biblical values that we hold to be true. We see this calling again in uh, 1 Thessalonians 2, verses 11 and 12. He says, For you know how, like a father with his children, we exhorted each one of you and encouraged you and charged you to walk in a manner worthy of God who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. The Thessalonians were exhorted, encouraged, charged to walk in a manner worthy of God. Good fathers do the same thing with their children to bring out good behaviors. And this was the behavior that Paul desired to bring out in these believers who were growing in Christ, walking in a manner worthy of God. You know, I want Sophia to say please and thank you. So I tell her, Sophia, you need to say please and thank you. I'm exhorting her. And then when she does it, I encourage her, Sophia, great job saying please and thank you. And then when we go to Publix and we see, she sees the bakery section, she knows there are those sprinkled cookies in there. She says, Poppy, can I have one? I usually say yes, I don't know. But, but then I tell her, make sure you say please and thank you. I'm charging her. I'm entrusting her with the responsibility of saying please and thank you. And so, and so Paul says here, as a father to his children, you need to live in a manner worthy of God. Keep up the good work living in a manner of God. I'm entrusting you with the responsibility of living in a manner worthy of God himself who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. Do we desire this type of life? Do we want our lives lived in a way that is worthy of our Lord? Do we want to be fully pleasing to him? Do our lives reflect this calling? You know, when we see Christ face to face on that, and we've been transported to glory, you know, do we desire to hear those words, well done, good and faithful servant? You know, this is not a legalistic demand. Um, I want to be very clear here. You know, living a life fully pleasing to him. This is a beautiful outcome of a life that is lived, filled by the knowledge of his will, as we'll see here in a moment. And this can only begin from the point of our salvation. When we were saved, we were justified, made right with God. And now, praise God, he didn't leave us as we were. Uh, We are being sanctified. We're being made more like Christ. Our lives being conformed to him. And this is a work that he is doing within us. It's a lifelong process, right? And it's one that won't be complete until we are united with him and our sanctification is complete. But while we are here, we can live in a way that pleases God or we can live in a way that displeases God. So what is a life fully pleasing to God, worthy of the Lord, look like? 
Well, let's look at what characterizes a life lived fully pleasing to God. The first thing that we see here is it bears fruit. In verse 10, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God. Living a life pleasing to God bears fruit through the good works that are a result of, the, of a heart that has been saved and is being sanctified by God. Good works don't lead to salvation. Good works are the evidence of our salvation. The natural outcome of a heart that has been shown immense grace, mercy, kindness, and love from a holy God and now begins to reflect those same mercies in our actions. This is what we call bearing fruit. Our actions matter to God. Newsflash here, we're not called to just sit on our butts after we get saved and do nothing. We are to be fruit bearers, right? And this is a a repeated picture that we see in in Scripture. You know, a fruit tree grows in order to bear fruit, uh, to be fruitful. You know, what good is an apple tree that uh, doesn't have apples or an orange tree without oranges? Fruit is good. Fruit is important. And fruit is expected. We are, to be, we are to bear fruit in every good work, it says. Every good work that we do. You know, this is descriptive of a life lived fully pleasing to God, lived in a manner worthy of him. And in fact, James tells us that faith, faith apart from works is dead, right? It's dead. A dead orange tree doesn't produce oranges. It's a healthy, fully alive orange tree that produces oranges. We can have that delicious OJ every morning, right? And we see the fruit of the Spirit in Galatians 5, right? He talks about the fruit of the Spirit. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. You know, these are fruits born of a heart that was once dead in sin and trespass, lost without hope, but has now been made alive in Christ, been raised to new life, and it's now being changed to be more and more like him. Love, joy, peace, these are fruits. These are marks of a believer. They are marks of living a life worthy of Christ. Our fruit, our works, they matter to God. Ephesians 2.10 says, For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. They matter to God because we are his workmanship. He is at work in our hearts, changing our hearts, making us more like Christ. And he's prepared good works for us to walk in. He says, before time began. Why? For his glory. He showed us mercy. He brought us from death to life. He gave his son to pay for our sins, and he's at work in our hearts. We had nothing good in and of ourselves, uh, but these hearts have been changed. They are being changed And the good works that are produced from our lives now bring him glory because it's only possible for them to exist due to his saving grace in our lives. Do you have these? You know, think about it. Is our lives bearing fruit? Is my life bearing fruit? We need to think about that. So how else do we live a life worthy of the Lord? Well, it says, increasing in the knowledge of God. Living in a way where we are increasing in the knowledge of God. A life lived fully pleasing to the Lord is bearing fruit and increasing in the knowledge of God. We aren't to be stagnant in our knowledge of him. You know anybody who's read through the Bible once and said, all right, I got it. No, we are to be growing in our knowledge of him, seeking to learn more of him. 
This is a well of endless depth, isn't it? There's no end to an infinite God. Infinite in his goodness, his mercy, his love, his being. You know, Paul exclaims in Romans 11.33, Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. You know, don't, don't take the fact that we can grow in our knowledge of God for granted. You know, if you stop and consider it, that we can have any knowledge at all of a holy, righteous, eternal, invisible, incomprehensible God, that's mind-blowing. It is. God has graciously revealed himself to us through his Son, through his Word, and through the work of the Holy Spirit in our hearts. I love how Paul says in Ephesians 3 where he speaks of needing strength, just even comprehend the love of Christ. You know, as we, as we consider this, he says in verses 17 to 19 there, that you being rooted and grounded in love may have the strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. May you have strength to comprehend the vastness of the love of Jesus. The vastness of it surpasses knowledge, it says. And as we grow in our knowledge of him, fruit, good works, qualities that reflect him, such as love and gentleness and kindness, they come forth from our lives. You know, there's a, there's a progression here, right? As we fill ourselves with the knowledge of his will, we grow in godly wisdom and understanding, And the more we grow in godly wisdom and understanding, the more we will walk in a manner worthy of the Lord. The more fully pleasing to him we'll be. And the more we walk pleasing to him, the more we'll grow in our knowledge of him. The more we'll grow in godly wisdom. And the cycle just kind of continues on and on. But, all right, so how how do we do this? You know, how is it possible that we can live uh, in a way that's not partly but fully pleasing to him? Well, Paul gives us two hows here. He says, be filled with the knowledge of his will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding and by being strengthened with all power according to his glorious might. Let's start with this first one in in verse 9. Be filled with the knowledge of his will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding. You know, Paul begins uh, his prayer for these Colossian Christians starting with a petition that they would be filled with the knowledge of his will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him. This is how it's possible to live a life fully pleasing to him. Be filled with the knowledge of his will. Live according to spiritual wisdom. Live with spiritual understanding. That life that seeks first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. Fill yourselves with knowledge of him and knowledge of his will. What does it mean to be filled with the knowledge of his will? Seek the will of God. Learn it. Be controlled by it. You know, we touched on the, the will of God several months ago in our city group study. And, um, you know, when we talked about the attributes of God, right? And mainly it was that God's purposes, his will is in effect. His providence is behind the very existence of, his, of this world, behind all of creation. God is the one who works all things according to the counsel of his will. You know, stretching from eternity past through eternity future, God is determining the very existence of all things. Revelation 4.11 tells us that it's by the will of God all things exist and were created. You know, praise God, you and I wouldn't be here if it wasn't according to his will. Now, 
who are we to know the full counsel of God, right? Clearly we don't. Um, part of God's will is and will remain a mystery to us, his secret will. Deuteronomy twenty nine twenty nine speaks to this. He says, The secret things belong to the Lord our God, but the things that are revealed belong to us and to our children forever, that we may do all the words of this law. There are things that only God knows. There are, when we ask the question why, there are answers that only he knows the whys for. But there are things that have been revealed to us as well, that we may do all the words of his law. Part of God's will has been revealed to us. And even to say that we can know part of his will is a marvelous statement. You want to know what the will of God is for your life? Look in scripture. What does it say? Beloved, let us love one another. Be patient with one another. Go into all the world and preach the gospel. God's will is revealed to us all throughout scripture. And so Paul says, be filled with the knowledge of his will and all spiritual wisdom wisdom and understanding. Be filled. Don't be consumed or led astray with worldly ideology or empty philosophy. Don't Certainly don't lean on your own understanding. Be filled with the knowledge of his, his will. And Paul says, I'm praying this for you. you know, he's on his knees in prayer that these believers would be filled with the knowledge of his will. Why is this important? You know, being filled with the knowledge of his will and all spiritual wisdom and understanding is what they needed to live lives fully pleasing to God. And it says, in all spiritual wisdom and understanding, gain spiritual wisdom. Study the scripture so that your understanding would be on point. It would be aligned with God's will and with his word. You know, we deep dived into Proverbs last year, and what do we learn about Knowledge and wisdom. Knowledge is the information, and wisdom is the skillful application of that. And James tells us that there is wisdom that comes from above, and then there's also wisdom that is earthly and ungodly. In James three thirteen through 17, it says, Who is wise and understanding among you? By his good conduct, let him show his works in the meekness of wisdom. But if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast and be false to the truth. This is not the wisdom that comes down from above, but is earthly, unspiritual, demonic. For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there will be disorder and every vile practice. But the wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial and sincere. What is the wisdom from above? It's pure, it's peaceful, it's gentle. It's not argumentative, merciful, fruitful, impartial. It's the wisdom that comes only from God, not the wisdom of man. And this is a stark contrast to the earthly wisdom, uh, to false knowledge and humanistic reasoning uh, that were prevalent here in, in Colossae. It goes back to why Paul was writing to them in the first place. Because on the one hand, he's heard of their love and their faith and their hope. But on the other hand, there's a threat in close proximity to them. Worldly knowledge, worldly wisdom, false teaching were present, and they were a threat to the Colossian believers. And Paul takes this threat very seriously. False teaching, worldly wisdom, mixing human knowledge with the gospel and with the mystery of Christ, there is grave, that's a grave danger. There is no place for them in the church. There's no place to mix and match our faith that we have with other philosophies or other religions, other spiritual practices. You know, what does Ephesians 4 tell us about our faith? 
in verses 4 to 6, there is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father over all, who is over all, I'm sorry, of all, who is over all and through all and in all. How many? There's one. There's one. But here we have, you know, nevertheless, there were teachings, other worldly wisdom and knowledge that were being presented. In Colossians 2, you know, Paul talks a little bit more about this. And he says that he desires them to reach all the riches of full assurance of understanding and the knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge, in verses 2 to 3. And he's saying that in order that no one may delude them with plausible arguments, verse 4, arguing for other wisdom, other understandings that are not from God. And then he says, see that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit according to the human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. You know, Paul's struggle for these Christians is real. They are loving Christians, faithful Christians. They're bearing fruit, but they're being threatened with these plausible arguments, philosophy, empty deceit, human traditions, mixing spiritualism and interactions with the spiritual realm. You know, these can take you captive, brothers and sisters. They can darken your mind. They can pull you to in. There's, there's an allure to them, right? These are not according to the spiritual wisdom that we are to adhere to. Um, I had a coworker several years ago. Um, she said she knew Jesus. We would talk about God and the Bible. And she went to a big-name church here in Orlando. And at that church, she was encouraged in her practice of Reiki, energy healing. You, know, you put your hands on someone and act as a conduit between them and the source of universal life force energy. You know, that energy flowing between your hands and them. And she was into crystals. You know, she had just bought a new house and she put a big crystal over the entryway and then had crystals strategically placed all through the house to keep out bad energy. And these practices, they weren't called out in her church. They were applauded. They were promoted. They were accepted. And Paul feels here a pastoral responsibility for these Christians And he says he struggles over this. Let no one delude you with plausible arguments. Don't be taken captive by philosophy or by traditions, by spiritualism. It's in Christ. It's in him alone in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. And they are treasures, aren't they? You know, Paul struggles that their hearts may be encouraged, being knit together in love to reach all the riches of full assurance of understanding and the knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ. There is a mystery out there, and you can be fully assured that you know what that mystery is. It's Christ. And when you know Christ, you have understanding and knowledge of God's mystery. The answer to this mystery isn't found in science or in philosophy, certainly not in crystals of light or a newly uncovered doctrine that's been missing for centuries or that artifact that links us to, you know, the aliens that came before us. Oh, the mystery revealed, revealed to us is Christ. Be filled with the knowledge of his will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding. There's a second aspect that we see here of living a life worthy of the Lord. We find that in verse 11. Being strengthened with all power according to his glorious might. A life that is pleasing to the Lord is, is strengthened with all power. Not worldly power, not human strength. Strengthened with spiritual power according to 
his glorious might. And we live in a society that loves power, don't we? You know, politics is no longer about, um, you know, what's in the best interest of the people. It's all about power. It's all about leverage, you know, the power to run your agenda. Worldly power, it corrupts, doesn't it? It can become a consuming monster, uh, never satisfied, always demanding more. Everyone who has it, they live in fear of losing it. And these Christians in Colossae, they were facing teachings uh, that were promoting other sources of spiritual power, false ones, looking to spiritual visions, practices, powers that would sensuously fill your mind in a gratifying way. And in Colossians 2.18, he warns them, let no one disqualify you with these things. Uh, these, these things were being presented to the Colossians as other ways of tapping into spiritual power, you know, worshiping other beings or asceticism or avoidance of indulgences, spiritual visions, you know. They were hearing these from people that were puffed up, you know, convinced that there were power, there was power to be found in these, there, that there was something else to tap into. A life lived fully pleasing to God is not powerful in the ways the world seeks power nor in the way that the flesh is gratified by power. It is strengthened with all power according to his glorious might. We are strengthened, empowered, not because we are strong. We're weak, but it's because he is strong. And it's according to his glorious might. We serve a mighty God, brothers and sisters. He is all-powerful. There is nothing lacking in his power. There is nothing we need to add through life force energy or crystals or hoping in a political party or a new age healing. We don't adhere to those. Our God has glorious might. And so First Peter reminds us then that we are to humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so at the proper time he may exalt you. We serve a mighty God, and we are to be strengthened according to his might and not our own. And what does this strengthening lead to? It says, for all endurance and patience with joy. Our strength will fail. Our power is not endless. Worldly power is corrupted. But when we are strengthened with his power, we will endure. We will have the patience we need in each moment because our strength is not our own, but it comes from the mighty one. Being strengthened leads to joyful, patient endurance. And it comes with joy, doesn't it? Pure, pure joy. I mean, we studied joy uh, last year in Philippians, and we learned that Joy is different from happiness. You know, happiness is based on circumstances. It's changeable. I was happy, now I'm sad. Joy, though, comes from outside of our circumstances. You know, we can rejoice always because our joy is independent on whether things are going well or not. We can rejoice always because our lives are hidden in Christ. We can rejoice always because we have been redeemed. We can rejoice always because in every moment we have the love of Jesus. And we can endure every moment, no matter how hard, no matter how dark, because we've been strengthened with the power of a mighty God. And so we can endure patiently with joy, living a life fully pleasing to the Lord. We should never need to evaluate whether that power is sufficient, but we should evaluate our own hearts. You know, am I being, am I living by his strength or my own? Am I being strengthened by him? Or have I bought into a mindset or a philosophy that relies or looks to a different power. When we're strengthened with his power, we will endure patiently with joy, and our lives will be fully pleasing to God. And now Paul proceeds to give thanks as we live lives 
pleasing to him because it's only possible because of what he's done for us in Christ. Our epic call to live lives worthy of the Lord is made possible by his epic redemption of our souls. Colossians 1.12 says, giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance in light. Give thanks. You know, Tim Keller says it's one thing to be grateful. It's another to give thanks. Gratitude is what you feel. Thanksgiving is what you do. Giving thanks is an action. We have so much to give thanks for, don't we? And now we can call the one to whom we are thankful, Father. We have been made his children and reconciled by the blood of Christ. Look at all the things that Paul mentions that the Father has done for us that we are to give thanks for. He says he's qualified us. It's the Father who has qualified us to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. The he there is God the Father. And the us is are all who have believed in Jesus for salvation and been made his sons and daughters. We are the saints. And Paul makes an interesting statement here. He says, he has qualified us to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. If you are qualified, it means you've met the prerequisite conditions. You know, your doctor, right, should be qualified to teach you or treat you when you're sick. They should have the prerequisite knowledge to accurately diagnose and prescribe treatment. If they don't, you know, who knows what happens. You could walk into a hospital with a headache and come out with two left thumbs. Right? (laughs) Um, no, doctors don't inherently have that knowledge to properly diagnose you. They don't, they're not born with knowing how to properly set a broken arm. They went to school. They studied to be qualified to do so. But Paul is telling us, though, that it is God who has qualified us. This also means that we were previously unqualified. We couldn't qualify ourselves. God qualified us when he sent his son, the Lord Jesus Christ, to suffer and die on our behalf. He paid for our sins, having none of his own. He qualified us. And now we who've received Christ as our Savior, we've become sons and daughters of God, who we can now call our Father. Now we are qualified to share in the inheritance of the saints as sons and daughters of God. That's how an inheritance works, right? Traditionally, it's passed from the Father to the Son, from the Father to his children. And here we have a beautiful inheritance, the salvation of our souls, which God has qualified us for through Jesus. And having accepted it by faith, we are now sons and daughters of a good and gracious Father, looking forward to the inheritance that awaits us. You cannot buy uh, or earn inheritance. You cannot buy it. You cannot merit it. It's a gift, freely, accepted freely and joyfully, by the sons and daughters of a good and gracious Father. In our inheritance, it's, it's guaranteed. We are sealed by the Holy Spirit who guarantees it, that it awaits us. Ephesians 1, 13 and 14 says, In him, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. Our inheritance is guaranteed. Praise God. You know, it won't be spent before we get there. We will acquire possession of it. And our inheritance is rich and glorious. It's not what's left over after the funeral expenses and the mortgage is paid off. It's a magnificent inheritance. Ephesians 1.18 says, 
having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints. Do you look forward to the riches of a glorious inheritance? Does that fill you with hope? It absolutely should. We have an amazing inheritance awaiting us, awaiting the saints in light. He refers to the recipients of this inheritance as the saints in light. As saints of God, we are no longer in sin and darkness. We are in the light. You know, Paul was uh, keenly aware of this. Um, We saw in uh, Acts 26 where uh, he told King Agrippa that this calling that he has to bring the gospel to the Gentiles was so that they may turn from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God. uh, God was sending Paul to the Gentiles so that they may turn from darkness to light. And as saints, we are now of the light. Not of our own doing, right? We were hopelessly lost in sin, in darkness, slaves to sin, bound in in corruption and destined for judgment. But praise God. You know, look what else we have to give thanks for. It says in verse 13, He's delivered us from the domain of darkness. God is the one who has delivered us from the domain of darkness. He's rescued us, and he alone has the power to do that. And we now are, uh, as 1 Peter 2.9 says, but you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. You know, we live in a, a dark world, but we are not in darkness. We've been called out of that darkness into a marvelous light, the light of the gospel, the light of Christ. And this is a deliverance by God himself. You know, just like God delivered the children of Israel from the hand of Pharaoh, delivering them from slavery and bondage, he has delivered us from slavery and bondage to sin, from the domain of darkness. This is a beautiful reminder of our position in Christ, brothers and sisters. This should confound us and fill us with gratitude and thankfulness. We have been delivered. We have been set free. Well, look, look what else it says he's done. He's transferred us, and we have been transferred to the kingdom of his beloved son. Our citizenship has changed. Our eternal destination is now with Christ in glory. There is a domain of darkness that we were born into, having sin natures from birth, you know, no good in ourselves, no righteousness of our own. But now we are no longer. Now we have been transferred into the kingdom of Jesus, the one who God has highly exalted and to whom one day every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God. We are of his kingdom, the beloved son of the father, and it is he who has secured our place in his kingdom. It's in him. It says in verse 14, in Christ, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. We have been redeemed. You know, a payment has been made for our sins, a purchase costly and horrible that spilt the blood of the beloved Son of the Father for wretched sinners so that all who come to faith in Jesus would be saved and have their sins forgiven. Our redemption is in Christ alone, brothers and sisters. There is no other way. Our sins were many, an offense against a righteous and holy God in whom there is no sin, no deceit, a God completely good and so holy that there is no sin even in his presence. But what does Ephesians 2 remind us of? In verses 4 through 7, it says, But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love 
with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together by, with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised up with him and seated with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming age he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. In Christ Jesus we have redemption, all of our sins forgiven, and now we can look forward to his kingdom, a heavenly kingdom, that for all the ages we can shout with joy the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. It's only because he's qualified us, he's delivered us, he's transferred us, and in Christ we have redemption. This is why living in a manner worthy of the Lord is possible. This is why our lives can be fully pleasing to him because of the epic redemption purchased for us and having received by faith that epic message of the gospel, we can live out this epic calling of living lives in a manner worthy of our Lord.